At some point in life, everyone needs to see a doctor. And arguably, many of us should be going way more frequently than we actually do. But seeing a doctor here in the United States can sometimes result in an expensive bill, especially if you're uninsured. And sometimes, even if you are insured, maybe your appointment or your treatment or your provider wasn't included as part of your medical coverage. According to research led by the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, the average cost of an appointment with a primary care doctor for an uninsured patient in 2015 was $160. And from the same case study, only 79% of the uninsured patients were even offered an appointment. In May of 2023, Forbes published an article comparing the costs of health insurance on the ACA marketplace. They found that the monthly cost for an adult 21 years of age ranged from $330 to $404, depending on the plan. And for a 27-year-old adult, that range increased with the lowest plan costing $405 to the highest level costing about $423 a month. And these rates are based on single adults without dependents. Now, you may be trying to do some math to sort out if you can save some money by going without insurance. I mean, how often do you see your primary care doctor after all? Aside from the fact that you should be going to see your primary care doctor, ideally every year for a regular physical, there are other doctors you should also be going to see regularly. I mean, there's your dermatologist. You should be going every year for a skin check. And if you're someone who visits the gynecologist, that's another exam that should be done annually. And those types of doctor's visits typically cost more than a primary care doctor. But perhaps the biggest reason why we need insurance is for those unexpected health issues that can arise. What if you're in a car accident or you find yourself really sick with a more long-term diagnosis? That's when medical costs can become insurmountable and insurance can make a huge difference. The end of October is typically the time of year when open enrollment begins for a lot of health insurance plans. This is the window of time when you can change or enroll in a health insurance plan. And once that window closes, you have to wait again to enroll or make any changes until next year. But with so many options and plans ranging significantly in cost, how do you know which one is the best one for your needs and for your budget? And what on earth is a PPO versus an EPO? Start taking notes, because this is Stuff. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Grown Up Stuff, How to Adult, the podcast where we figure out things like what's a premium and what's included in a deductible, all in the name of adulthood. I'm Molly, and I'm joined by my co-host, Matt Stillo, and we hope that you are healthy and well as you are listening to this podcast because we're going to dig into health insurance on this episode. What is it? Why do we need it? Why does it seem to be written in another language that relies so heavily on acronyms? But to start us all off, Matt, what was your earliest experience with health insurance and what has it been like in your young life? Has it been good, <laughs> yeah. bad, confusing? Well, thank you for calling me young on this podcast because I'm about you to turn are. 34 this year and I don't know how I feel about You're it. You're young. But... Listen, we all feel some sort of way about that age, about all the ages. So uh, yeah. you're doing great, Especially Matt. You're one. doing great. So for everyone out there who's like, you know, unemployed, underemployed, you are in the right place because I was actually on my parents' healthcare up until the last possible second. I was like about to turn 27 right before like the enrollment period for the new year. And I got this job, my first like full job with like 401k and salary and healthcare. And I was like, 
I couldn't believe it. I like I got through that open enrollment and I was like, wow, under the freaking wire because I was so worried <laughs> about yeah. like, what's going to happen now. You know, that wave of relief quickly subsided as I was reading through the healthcare plans because what the hell? Yeah, There's honestly. all this lingo. Like, how is a child, right? Because 26 is a child. Yes. Supposed to figure that stuff out. Even my parents couldn't help me because it's gotten so confusing in the last few years. So after it was all said and done, I felt like, did I make the right decision? I have no oh, idea. Yeah. Every subsequent year, I was trying to, like, do right. Like, I'm going to get it this time. Yes. I'm going to get it this time. Yes. And I don't think even to this day, I've ever really fully figured it out. But I just want everyone to know out there that like, if you are confused by this, it is okay. We're going to figure it all out together. But Molly, yeah, I, I feel like this, you probably felt the exact same way. Oh, I mean, I'll hit submit and I'll go back and review before the window of open enrollment <laughs> closes. Ultimately decide I've made the right decision. But once that period ends, I'm like, nope, I've made the wrong decision. I know it. I've made the wrong decision. But let's get to our conversation <laughs> with our guest because I do think she's going to be able to clarify a lot of this for us. Today, we are joined by the one and only Julie Rovner. Julie is the chief Washington correspondent and host of What the Health, a weekly health policy news podcast from KFF Health News. KFF Health News is a national newsroom that focuses on health issues and was founded by the Kaiser Family Foundation, which is now more commonly referred to as KFF. Julie joined the KFF Health News team after 16 years as a health policy correspondent for NPR, where she helped lead the network's coverage of the Affordable Care Act. Julie is also the author of the book Healthcare Politics and Policy A to Z and the recipient of the National Press Foundation's Everett McKinley Dirksen Award for Distinguished Reporting of Congress. Well, Julie Rovner, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Grown Up Stuff, How to Adult. And at this podcast, we'd like to really like ask the most dumb question straight out of the gate, uh, just to kind of level set with everyone. We don't know anything. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and that really dumb question is, what exactly is health insurance and why is it so important to have, especially in the United States? Well, health insurance is supposed to prevent you from going broke if something bad happens to you. A lot of young people don't think they need health insurance because, after all, they're less likely to get sick. But, you know, even a 25-year-old can get hit by a bus or run into a tree if you go skiing. Um, things can happen. Unfortunately, young people get very serious diseases. And if you don't have health insurance, our healthcare system is really, really expensive. You do not want to get caught up in it if you don't have some kind of insurance. You know, that's a really good point. Young people are not exempt from getting cancer, unfortunately. And sadly, I've had a handful of friends in their late 20s and early 30s who have been diagnosed with cancer. And even things like a broken bone can be really expensive without insurance. But I myself have been in situations where I've either been in between jobs or freelancing. So what are the best options to get health insurance if we can't get it through an employer? Well, congratulations. We now all have options, which we didn't when I was a young freelancer. Um, that is exactly what the Affordable Care Act was aimed at. It was aimed at people that don't get their health insurance on the job provided by an employer. So basically, if you're working for yourself, 
you can buy insurance and it's pretty good insurance on the healthcare exchange. And if you don't earn a lot of money, you'll get a subsidy, in some cases oh. a really big subsidy. So not only will you not have to pay very high premiums, and particularly if you're younger, you might not even have to pay very much if you have to go and get care. You can get savings on your, your co-payments and deductibles. So there are a lot of ways that the Affordable Care Act is aimed at getting people insured who were not previously eligible either for Medicare or Medicaid or an employer to insure them. So that's the good news. The other way, of course, you can get insured or stay insured if you've had a job and you're between jobs is there's something called COBRA, which allows you to continue your employer insurance until you get another job or another way to get insurance. But if you had insurance and you lose it for pretty much any reason, you can sign up under the Affordable Care Act at any time of the year. You get your own personal open enrollment period. Just so that I'm clear on this, was there no way to directly go to a health insurance company before the ACA, otherwise known as Obamacare, was enacted? There were lots of ways to go to a health insurance company before the Affordable Care Act. The problem is they might not have sold you insurance because they didn't always have to. Uh, Mm. In states where they said, you have to take everybody, even if they're sick, the insurer said, okay, bye, we're just not going to sell in this state. So there were a lot of people who wanted to get insurance who couldn't. If you were really healthy, they were likely to sell you insurance. Could have been, depending on where you live, pretty cheap or pretty expensive. But Sometimes when it was really cheap, it didn't cover very much. There were health insurance policies that would only cover up to the first $500 worth of care. That barely gets you in the door at a hospital and even a doctor's office in some case. So there was a lot of bad health insurance and a lot of health insurance that wasn't really insurance. And one of the things that the Affordable Care Act did, and it was controversial, was to say that These are going to be the standard benefits that every accredited health insurance policy has to offer. That, of course, made a lot of health insurance a lot more expensive because, hey, now it had to cover actual stuff. But I think a lot of people who didn't need their health insurance very often didn't realize how little their health insurance really covered. It actually puts it into great perspective, like, you know, how historic the Affordable Care Act was. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I was it was before I, I had had my first job and had my first health insurance plan, so I did not really realize um, how big of a deal that is. The one other thing that I wanted to ask you about, and, and maybe why it was included in the Affordable Care Act, which is um, that dependents, um, you know, children who are on their parents' plan, they can stay on those plans until they're twenty six. Why exactly was that included in the ACA? This was a huge, huge deal. Um, Until then, most kids got kicked off their parents' plans when they turned 18. If they went to college, they would buy student health plans. Then they would graduate and they would have no insurance. And it was a big problem. And also it was a deterrent to do things like go join the Peace Corps, you know, become a volunteer somewhere, take an internship or take any kind of job that didn't offer health insurance because it's so dangerous to be uninsured these days. So basically what they said was we're going to require employers to allow kids to stay on their parents' plans until they're 26. And the idea is that by the time somebody is 26, they should be grown up enough to find a way to have health insurance, either be established as a freelancer or have a job that provides insurance. Um, But basically, you want to be able to get kids through school and through higher learning and still keep them insured. And also, a lot of young people, as I mentioned at some point, 
don't think they need health insurance and don't buy it. And this is just an easier way for parents to make sure that their kids are insured, even as they are launching their own careers. It was a an extremely popular benefit. It was one of the few benefits in the ACA that was completely bipartisanly popular. Both sides wanted it. And it's obviously, you know, a fairly highly used benefit. The Affordable Care Act, or ACA, or Obamacare, is a comprehensive health care reform law that was enacted in March of 2010. According to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the law had three primary goals. One, make affordable health insurance available to more people. Two, expand the Medicaid program to cover all adults with income below 138 percent of the federal poverty level. And three, support innovative medical care delivery methods designed to lower costs of health care generally. As Julie mentioned, one way they achieved this was by increasing the age of health insurance dependents to 26. Now, I personally didn't have the slightest idea how to properly choose a health insurance plan when I did turn 26, and I was often asking coworkers what they chose for guidance. And that's because when I was given these options, I felt like I needed a translator for all of the different terms. Before we get into anything too specific, um, I think there's a couple of terms that we should really like talk about what they mean exactly. So first, would you mind telling us what a premium is? A premium is the amount you pay basically to have insurance. So it will usually be a monthly fee. And that's what makes you a policyholder is paying the premium. Usually if it's employer provided insurance, the employer will pay at least some, possibly most, in a few cases, all of the premium. But generally there is someone pays the premium for you to have insurance. Awesome. Okay. I'm just going to rattle through these. So uh, deductible, what is a deductible? Deductible is how much you pay out of pocket before your insurance starts paying. Um, deductibles can most are in this sort of couple of hundred to several hundred dollar range, which in theory is what people can afford. It depends. You know, if you have a family, sometimes it can be, you know, five hundred dollars for each member of the family that can turn into a lot of money pretty quick. But the general rule of thumb is the higher your premium, the lower your deductible. So if you don't think you're going to use a lot of health insurance, you might want to get something with a lower premium, but a higher deductible and vice versa. If you think you will use insurance, you might want to get a higher premium with a lower deductible. So your insurance kicks in faster. Awesome. And then what about like copay and co-insurance? Yes, those are two slightly different things. But the idea is that once you reach the place where your insurance starts paying for things, it's shared. Insurance rarely pays 100% of anything. So either they will charge you a copay, they will say, if you go to the pharmacy and you get one of these, you know, 400 common drugs, you will have a copay of $10. And if you get a slightly more expensive drug, you'll have a copay of $20. Coinsurance is when they say, if you go to the doctor or the hospital, we're going to pay 80% or 90% and you're going to pay the other 10%. Coinsurance can turn into a lot of money these days when health care is so expensive. You know, people think, oh, it's I have a 5% coinsurance. Um, if you go to the hospital, 5% can very quickly become many thousands of dollars. Truly, it's insane. And so I have a deductible and I hit that, but then why is there an out-of-pocket maximum? Great question. That's a very good question because, as I just said, your coinsurance can turn into a lot of money very quickly. And that's why 
plans are required to have an out-of-pocket maximum. So you don't, once you hit a certain number, usually in the near $10,000 range, you don't have to pay anything more for the rest of the year. Then the calendar will reset and you'll have to start again. Um, But it's generally, yeah. (laughs) Even if you have health insurance, you can end up on the hook for a lot of money. That's why they have things like flexible spending accounts and health savings accounts. Healthcare these days is really expensive in the United States, even with insurance. Yeah. So to clarify, just that I understand this, So your deductible, once you meet that, then they'll cover a certain percentage of certain things, right? Right. Up to your out-of-pocket maximum. It's like basically a video game. You're like, you get to the first (laughs) boss, and then you get to the second boss, and you get to the second boss. You win, and you get all these new things, and you can do anything. So after you hit that out-of-pocket, though, then they have to cover everything, right? Is that correct? It's usually right. There are things, then they will say, well... You're not in network, so we're not going to cover all of it. There are exceptions to that. You know, if it's not covered by the plan, then they can make you pay it. KFF Health News and NPR and CBS have been doing something we call the bill of the month for a couple of years now where people send us their medical bills that they just can't handle. And we try to sort out what's going on. And there are cases where people have been, you know, they've gone way over their out-of-pocket maximum, but they've been billed anyway. Sometimes they're actually liable for those bills. Sometimes they're not. Do you want the out-of-pocket maximum for this year? Yes, please. What is it? (laughs) For the 2024 plan year, yes. The out-of-pocket maximum for a marketplace plan can't be more than $9,450 for an individual Mm. and $18,900 for a family. It's a lot of money. That's no joke. It's a lot of money. And it says the things that they don't cover, it doesn't, your out-of-pocket doesn't cover premiums. It doesn't, it says it doesn't cover anything you spend for services your plan doesn't cover. Doesn't cover out-of-network care and services doesn't cover costs above the allowed amount for a service a provider may charge. So I was curious about what goes towards my deductible, because sometimes I think I'm like, whoa, I've spent, I must have hit my deductible at this point. Like I've spent so much money. But you're telling me if I've paid out of pocket for something my insurance doesn't cover to begin with, then that doesn't count towards my deductible? No. And that's, it's really important to know what does and doesn't count towards your deductible. Um, in some plans, out-of-network care won't count towards your deductible. Or you'll have a separate out-of-network deductible and in-network deductible. Then usually the out-of-network deductible will be higher. So it's not just anything you spend on medical care. It's anything that you spend on medical care that would be covered after you hit your deductible. Son of a bitch, Julie. <laughs> Oh, and for one more cherry on top of this depressing deductible Sunday, we did some additional digging and discovered most plans do not count your copays towards meeting your deductible. So, what exactly is a healthcare network and like why are some doctors in it and then others not? Generally, a healthcare network is a group of providers, so doctors, labs, hospitals, urgent care centers that have signed contracts with the insurer. And generally, the deal is the insurer says, we will send you our patient, so you will get more patients, and in exchange, you will give us a better price. So those are the, that's how you stay in network. And because the insurer knows what they're going to pay, uh, you, the patient, will only have to pay a limited amount, usually known. It used to be sort of flat dollar copayments, 10 or 15 or $20. More commonly these days, it's coinsurance, so you'd have to pay 10% or 20%, which can turn into a lot of money. But 
generally staying within your network of doctors, hospitals, um, and and other healthcare facilities is going to be a lot cheaper than going outside the network where the insurer doesn't have a deal to get a better rate from the provider and may have to pay more, even if you're going to pay more too. And what's the best way for us to determine who's included and who isn't? Oh, such a good question that should be so easy. There <laughs> there are provider directories where you can see who's in the plan and who isn't, except it turns out the provider directories are often wrong or incomplete. Unfortunately, this is something that's been going on for decades. And now that it's ever more important to know who's in your network and who isn't, it's still really hard to find out. So right. you have to call each provider until... This year, last year, there was also this problem about something called surprise bills, where you go to an in-network hospital, you know it's in your network, but you get treated by a doctor who's not in the network. And you don't have a choice. It might be the pathologist or the anesthesiologist. You know, you you schedule surgery and you know you're having surgery with this surgeon. And sometimes you'll call ahead, is the anesthesiologist in my network? And it's like, well, we don't really know who your anesthesiologist is going to be that day. Mm. So you have no idea. And then you would get these huge bills from emergency room doctors or anesthesiologists or doctors that you didn't choose. Um, Congress finally made that illegal, but only oh, very goodness. recently. Oh, my gosh. You know, the best way to find out if a provider is in network is, yes, I know. I know that, you know, like people under 40 hate talking to people on the phone, but this is a case where you might want to talk to people on the phone. It's happened to me a lot. Um, They don't always know either, but it's worth asking. I mean, I still go to providers that are, you know, I'm pretty sure in network, but, you know, you keep asking, are you really in my network? Am I really not going to get a bill for $1,000 here? Well, I'm glad it's not just me because I feel like I have to do that every single time, too. And I'm like, is this really how it works? Like, we just have to do this all the time? Yeah. Apparently it is. Our health system is not the most efficient or user-friendly or inexpensive. It's it's a lot of things that are not very good. I think there's there's a lot of disagreement on how to fix the healthcare system, but there's a whole lot of agreement that it is not working well right now. It is complicated, but this is why these conversations are so important so that we could be equipped with all of the knowledge and the tools and the resources to make the best decisions. This is a really important part of adulting. So important. I mean, yeah. Health insurance, saving for retirement, things that were a lot cheaper when I was a young adult um, are a lot more expensive now. And it's and you're a lot more on your own. We'll be right back with more grown-up stuff, how to adult after a quick break. And we're back with more grown-up stuff, how to adults. Let's go into, you know, the major health insurance plan options. For those of us who, you know, are employed, we know there's HMO, PPO, EPO, POS, HGHB, HP, which we're going to. So, yeah. So let's start with the top. HMO, what does it stand for? So an HMO stands for health maintenance organization. It was traditionally the most structured and limited way to get health insurance. And basically what the HMO says is we're going to get a certain amount of money a month for each patient and we're, that's going to cover all their care. So in theory, you should never get a bill or 
rarely get a bill if you're in an HMO. And you basically have to go to all of their providers. Mm. A traditional HMO like Kaiser Permanente has their own hospitals in many states. They don't in the eastern part of the country where they offer insurance. So they will have deals with other hospitals. But generally, you have to stay within the network. So it's the most restrictive. It's the hardest to go out and see other specialists or go other places. And generally, it has had traditionally the lowest premiums because it's the most restrictive. And then as you go further out, every time it gets easier for you to go outside of the network and get care from other places, your premium goes up because it's likely that the cost of the insurer is going to go up. So you're generally trading off restrictions in providers versus amount of premium. Interesting. So this then, I feel like, and maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like PPO and EPO kind of go hand in hand, right? They do. And an EPO is sort of a cross between a PPO. PPO is a preferred provider organization. I'm in a preferred provider organization where I don't have to go to the preferred providers. But if I do, it's a whole lot cheaper. Mm -hmm. So you're encouraged to stay in the network as opposed to being required to stay in the network. Um, EPO, which I think is an exclusive provider organization. The acronyms don't mean as much as they used to, which is what gets a little bit frustrating to people. And of course, the other thing that's really important to trade off, and I guess we'll get to this, is that your premium, your deductible are going to be directly linked. And that's really true in the Affordable Care Act plan. It's like the lower your premium, the higher your deductible, the most you're going to have to pay out of pocket before the insurance kicks in. You know, and if you pay a higher premium, you'll have a lower deductible. So unfortunately, there is sometimes arithmetic involved. It's not higher math, but it's math. <laughs> Fair. As we always say, it never hurts to do your homework or do the math for that matter. Um, okay, now POS. I've seen this and it does not mean piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> it means point of service. And that's basically the, the PPO plan where you can go out of network and they will pay a certain share. So typically, if you stay in network, you'll only have to have a copay. I think my copay is $15, which is pretty good for, you know, providers in network. That's really good. Um, yeah. If I, yeah, it's very good. If I go out of network after I've hit my deductible, they'll pay 70% and I'll pay the other 30%. Now, HDHP, I actually know what this stands for, High Deductible Health Plan, right? Now, this is different. It is. And it, it's confusing because there are a lot of sort of regular health plans, particularly the bronze plans in the Affordable Care Act, that have high deductibles. It used to be when, when they started these in the, the early 2000s, people's deductibles tended to be in the, you know, hundred, two hundred, $300 range, which I know sounds like quaint today. What a dream. Um, right. The HDHP plans, the idea was you would have a deductible of $1,000 or $1,500, which is pretty standard right now. But the catch was you weren't going to have to necessarily pay that whole deductible because you were also going to have something called an HSA, a health savings account. And the idea is that you and probably your employer would put money away and save it and it would grow tax free. And you could use that for medical expenses, either things that weren't covered by your insurance or things that would eventually be covered by your insurance once you hit your deductible. It's a kind of catastrophic insurance. It says you're going to pay this chunk up front. And if you really need a lot of medical care, then your insurance will kick in. 
the problem with this is a lot of people have HDHP plans and they don't have the HSAs that go with them. Huh. So they just have a really high deductible yeah. health plan. That's an issue. The, the idea is that they're supposed to be coupled with the health savings accounts. Now, health savings accounts were criticized a lot when they were first started by people who were all for you know universal coverage. But they said they mostly help the rich. They help people who earn enough or, to, to be able to save yeah. money, Yeah, to put money away that they might need for health care. On the other hand, if you're young, it's a pretty good savings vehicle. So um, we talked about how like an HSA can come with a high deductible health plan, but there's also this account called the FSA. So wh- where exactly does that come into play? And what is the difference between these two accounts? Is one like better than another? There's a big difference. An FSA, a flexible spending account, is generally offered by an employer. And it says, you, we will take money out of your paycheck and we will put it away and you can use it for medical expenses tax-free, which is very handy. Um, so I would... I go to the doctor, it costs $300. I haven't hit my deductible, so I now have $300 bill that I've paid. I send it off and it comes out of my, I get it back through my flexible uh, spending account and I haven't paid taxes on the income that's gone to finance that. There's some catches. If you don't use up all the money within a certain time, you can lose it. If you leave your job within a certain time, you can lose it. These rules have been expanded a little bit, so it's a little bit more flexible than it used to be. There's also some things that you can spend it on and some things that you can't. There's certain amounts of, I believe you can once again use it for over-the-counter products. You could for a while and then you couldn't, and I believe you now can again. So it's worth it to check. But it's also a good way, you know, depending on your tax bracket, it's a handy way to use tax-free money for medical expenses. Again, it's a way of encouraging people to put money away to pay medical expenses that insurance doesn't. But Julie, FSA, though, does not accrue interest the same way an HSA does. No, that's correct. It just sits in an account and there's an administrator. And sometimes, I mean, in my case, you know, my RFSA, I have a little credit card. So when I go to the uh, pharmacy and I need to pay my $30 copay, I just hand them the FSA credit card and then it goes through them. But no, an HSA is an actual savings account. An FSA is just sort of a place to kind of park money for a year. What kind of yield, interest yield are we talking here with these HSAs? Yeah, it's actually very similar to a retirement account where you could invest in like uh, an index, you know, S&P 500 sort of a fund. Exactly. It's a retirement account for medical expenses. There are a number of different things you can pay for using an HSA or an FSA, including menstrual care products and sometimes even acupuncture. The biggest difference between the two options An HSA accrues interest and can be rolled over from year to year, whereas an FSA, you have to use everything you have by the end of the year or you lose it. However, your eligibility for an HSA is dependent upon which health insurance plan you choose. And often HSAs are not offered when you have a low deductible plan. And you can no longer contribute to an HSA once you enroll in Medicare. You can still use what you have in an HSA, but you won't be able to keep putting money into it. Which leads me to a very important point. And don't judge me for not knowing this because I know I'm not the only one, but what is Medicare and what is the difference between Medicare and Medicaid? Medicare is the federal health program for people who are 
elderly over 65, and people with disabilities who qualify because they have worked long enough to be eligible for Social Security disability. So if you're over 65 or you're on Social Security disability, you are all you are eligible for Medicare. Medicare has a number of parts. The the hospital part comes for free. That's what you pay your payroll taxes for. The optional part B, you pay um, premiums for it. And now as of 2003, you can buy prescription drug coverage because believe it or not, until then, Medicare didn't cover prescription drugs. Really? Yeah, which was really bizarre. Yeah, especially since the older you get, the more medications I feel like you need. (laughs) That's why they didn't cover it, because it would have been really expensive. Um, So nobody had wanted to add it. Anyway, that is Medicare. So that is an all-federal program. There's obviously a lot of private insurance involved in it now for people who are older and who are on Social Security disability. Medicaid is for people with low incomes. And it used to be you had to fit into a category to get Medicaid. You had to be low income and a child, low income and a pregnant woman, low income and elderly. There's Many people who are on both Medicare and Medicaid, low income with a disability. As of the Affordable Care Act, you no longer had to be low income and something else. You only had to be low income. This was a huge change because there were a lot of adults and many young people who had low incomes but were not a child or a pregnant woman or somebody with a disability. So they were suddenly eligible for Medicaid. The trick was that the federal government made this an option for the state. So they didn't have to do it under the Affordable Care Act. It was a very attractive option. The federal government paid 100 percent of the state share for the first three years and still pays 90 percent. Now, Medicaid is a joint federal state program. Wealthier states have to pay half of the Medicaid costs. So for the federal government to say we're going to pay the whole thing for three years and then we're going to pay 90 percent was a gigantic gigantic incentive. Hospitals were dying to have states do this because Mm -hmm. all of those people who didn't have any insurance would show up at the hospital. The hospital would take care of them. Hospital would have nobody to bill. So at this point, most of the states have taken advantage of it. But there are still, I believe it's 10 holdout states that have not expanded Medicaid. And those do include some really big states like Texas and Florida and Georgia, uh, and then other states in sort of the South and the and the, some of the Great Plains states. But the vast majority of states now have expanded Medicaid. And so basically, if you have a low enough income, you can get health insurance through this joint federal state program. And so for the people who uh, may be listening that uh, would qualify as being low income, how might they go about taking advantage of Medicaid? There should be a state Medicaid office. If you just Google your state's Medicaid program, it should come up. If you go to the Affordable Care Act exchanges, the place where you buy private insurance, there's supposed to be something called the no wrong door policy, where if you type in all of your statistics and your income qualifies, you automatically get sent to Medicaid enrollment. Mm. Also, if you end up in a hospital or a community health center, um, a lot of places, the, the providers themselves will help you enroll in Medicaid because that's how they're going to get paid. So there are a lot of people with incentives to get you Medicaid if you're, in fact, eligible for it. Julie, Matt and I have been going back and forth on this because we've both chosen very different plans for various reasons, but between a high deductible health plan with a health savings account versus a PPO, POS, where you have a broader network and a lower deductible, which one do you think is a better plan to use for somebody like Matt and myself? 
I think it's an absolute personal choice. It has to do with what level of risk, how much do you worry about using healthcare or not using healthcare or saving for the future. I mean, it is they both have their places. And it's the nice thing about having choice is that it is an individual decision. I could not recommend one over the other. That's right. You heard it here. My choice is right. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so is Matt's. Fair, fair. So the question is, you know, it's a talk about, you know, taking your amount of risk. Do you think you're not going to use any health care during the year? Then you might want to go with the lowest premium plan you can find. And you might not have to pay that deductible. If you don't use any care, you don't have to pay a deductible. So if you do think you might be using medical care during the year and hint, hint, people should use at least some medical care during the year. There are preventive stuff that you should have. But if you think you can just, you know, write a check for that, pay it yourself, put it on your credit card, whatever, then you might want want to go with some kind of a high deductible health plan. If your employer offers to put money in an HSA, if you take that high deductible health plan, all the better. And if you can put a little bit of money in that HSA, it shields it from taxes for you and it shields it. And the employer sometimes will put in enough money to make up a good chunk of your deductible. So that can be that can be a good choice, particularly for for younger workers who are less likely to need medical care and more sensitive to the amount of the premium. If you have doctors, health providers that you are very attached to, you should find a plan that includes them. If you have certain prescription drugs that you take, you should make sure that the plan includes them. So there's there's homework to be done. But generally, it's how much do you want to pay out of pocket? How much do you think you might have to pay as a deductible and who and what is covered. Those are the things you need to sort of go through either with an employer plan, and most employers offer you a choice of at least a couple of plans, or with an Affordable Care Act plan, no matter what. I mean, the good news is that you're going to have some choice. The bad news is you're going to have to figure out which choice is best. While some coverage differs from plan to plan, the Affordable Care Act has required that certain things are covered by any plan like well-woman visits, birth control prescriptions, certain vaccines like the flu shot, preventative care like mammograms and colonoscopies, and dental and vision coverage for children. However, if you're an adult, dental and vision are not a requirement of your medical coverage. So we've got our medical plan, but then we find out dental and vision are not included. Why is that? Again, they're expensive. It's an add-on. It's not something that has traditionally been part of health insurance because, la la la, it didn't used to be that expensive. It wasn't an insurable event. Now it's expensive. Well, vision care, still, most vision care, still not that expensive. But dental care really is expensive. And again, like mental health care, we didn't used to think that it was really important medically, but it turns out oral health care is really important medically. Uncared for teeth can cause heart disease right. uh, in addition to other things. I mean, it is really important. Medicare still doesn't cover either dental care or eye care or hearing aids. You can see it in some, there are some private Medicare plans that do sort of as an enticement, but standard Medicare does not. The health insurance business has grown up slowly, shall we say, since the early 1900s. Um, at first, it was just hospitals that you needed insurance for, and then hospitals and doctors, and then hospitals and doctors and prescription drugs, and now hospitals and doctors and prescription drugs and vision care and dental care and mental health care and substance abuse care. There's a lot of things that make it expensive. And insurance basically is trying to spread the risk to 
the people who are healthy and who are sick. And if it's too expensive for the people who are healthy, they won't buy it. And if they don't buy it, we get into that insurance death spiral. I'm also curious, you know, it's wonderful that well women's visits are included in our standard care. But why isn't fertility included as part of that kind of well women's coverage? Because it's expensive. Mm -hmm. Almost whenever you ask, there's only two reasons why things aren't covered. Mm -hmm. They're not sort of accepted as standard treatment. This is actually why obesity drugs aren't covered for the most part, because until very recently, there weren't any that worked. There just weren't any good obesity drugs. It was easy to say, we're not going to pay for them because... There wasn't anything that we knew scientifically worked that you could pay for. The other thing is for things that were really expensive Mm -hmm. and infertility coverage is really expensive. And question is, you know, is an inability to get pregnant, you know, a medical problem? And it varies. I actually I'm re- I now found the statistics. So as of September 2023, 21 states plus the District of Columbia have passed fertility insurance coverage laws. 15 of those laws include IVF coverage and 17 cover fertility preservation. For instance, if you are a young woman diagnosed with breast cancer, um, you can have your eggs harvested so that you can get pregnant after your treatment if that's possible. Is there any sort of advice you can give someone to going through this process for the first time? Is there anything that we didn't cover? And then lastly, like, do you have any like hope for the future that this is going to get like less complex or um, easier to navigate? Yeah. How do you see it changing and evolving too? Well, one thing I will say is that there are lots of sources of help. There are navigators for the Affordable Care Act. If you look at your state's health insurance exchange, there are various counselors. You can talk to an agent who can help you sort of sort through this. You can talk to a trusted adult who's been through this who can help you sort through it. I mean, it's not easy. And you probably certainly the first or second or third time should reach out and get help. It's not intended to be easy. Um Am I optimistic? You know, 20 years ago, I said things were going to have to really get bad before we really fix things. And things are really bad. And we really, you know, we fix things a tiny, tiny piece at a time. Do I think it's going to get fixed? Yeah. Do I think it's going to get fixed anytime soon? Not so much anymore. So the best thing you can do is really arm yourself with information and figure out how it's going to work best for you. Julie, where can we find you and find more great advice about health care plans and insurance, et cetera? Where's the best way to kind of continue to follow your work? I am at kffhealthnews.org. Um, we have a separate page for our podcast, KFF Health News is What the Health. We come out every week. We cover health policy news and we have interviews with health policy newsmakers. And uh, we try to make it understandable for everybody. So you can subscribe, as they say, wherever you get your podcasts. I will say, um, in doing a lot of the research for this episode, I stumbled across a lot of KFF videos. And, and before I even really put two and two together, they were very, very helpful. The work that you guys do is very, very cool. Amazing. I feel way more empowered with open enrollment coming up. I seriously feel like I'm going to make some changes to my, to my, what I normally choose after having this conversation with you. Julie, thank you so much for sharing your, your, your time, your expertise, everything. Uh, we really appreciate it. Thank you for being with us this afternoon. Oh, sure. This was fun. I mean, this is, this is what I do. <laughs> Wow, 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 wow. Healthcare in the United States is complicated, and there are a lot of different options and exceptions to consider. Here's what I'm going to take with me from our conversation with Julie. 
The Affordable Care Act was monumental in the way it changed the requirements for medical coverage and overall accessibility of health insurance and care. There's no one singular superior health plan option that fits for everyone. It all depends on what level of risk you're comfortable with and how much you want to pay for your regular monthly cost or premium. If you don't think you're going to go to the doctor that much in a single year, then go with a higher deductible plan that allows you to pay a lower premium. If you're more risk averse and want to make sure you're not going to pay a ton if something bad happens and you can manage a higher premium payment, then find yourself a plan with a lower deductible. Once you reach your deductible, your plan begins to increase its coverage. But once you reach your out-of-pocket maximum, they should be covering pretty much everything until the end of the year. Sadly, there are a lot of things that are not included in the balance towards your deductible or the out-of-pocket max, including co-pays and other medical expenses that your health plan doesn't cover. HSAs versus FSAs. HSAs accrue interest but are only available with certain health insurance plans, and your total balance in an HSA rolls over year over year. An FSA, or flexible savings account, is a place to park your money, and it's a use-it-or-lose-it policy without any rolling balances at the end of the year. However, unlike an HSA, 100% of your elected amount is available on day one with an FSA. Dental health is important. Don't forget to floss. Well woman visits to your gynecologist are required by law to be covered in your health insurance plan. Our current system is complex and figuring it out is a lot to cover for just one episode, but there are a lot of resources out there that can help us better understand what our options are. And hopefully this was a good starting point for you. We may revisit some of the more specifics around health insurance or even just broader healthcare in upcoming episodes. But for now, that's all for this episode. Matt, what is next on this terrifying but rewarding road trip of grown-up stuff? Speaking of terrifying, our next episode is dropping on Halloween. Which, if you're a child, might be a festive holiday that involves dressing up in scary costumes. But if you're an adult and you listen to this podcast, it is throwing on whatever is in your closet with some sort of animal ears and drinking alcohol. So we will be learning how to drink like adults. Oh, thank God, because not only will it be Halloween, but then right after that, there's the holiday season. And I have got a lot of Friendsgivings and holiday parties to attend. And I really want to be the Negroni Spagliato type of adult. But right now I am still the can you make a Shirley Temple with alcohol in it type of adult? Do you actually order that? Yes, it's called a Dirty Shirley, and it's just a Shirley Temple with alcohol in it. Well, look, we all can't be Emma Darcy in order a Negroni Spagliato with Prosecco, but we can all learn how to become refined and sophisticated beverage drinkers in two weeks on Grown Up Stuff, How to Adult. And remember, you might not be graded in life, but it never hurts to do your homework. Or floss your teeth. This is a production from Ruby Studios from iHeartMedia. Our executive producers are Molly Sosha. And Matt Stillo. This episode was engineered by Matt Stillo. And written by Molly Sosha. This episode was fact-checked by Casby Bias. With additional editing by Sierra Spreen. We want to thank our teammates at Ruby Studios, including Ethan Fixell, Rachel Swan-Krasnoff, Amber Smith, Deborah Garrett, and Andy Kelly. <laughs>